If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome to the Eurogamer podcast. I'm Bertie, your host. And every two weeks, I find someone or some people from the world of video games to talk to. Remember, supporters of the Eurogamer website get these episodes first because I wouldn't have the time and space to do this without their support or your support. So thank you if that's you. You are the best. You can find out more about becoming a supporter over on Eurogamer.net or in the description below. Today on the podcast, another double header and two people whose games I've been enchanted by since I first played Sorcery Part 1 on my cruddy old iPhone way back in 2013. Since then, they've dazzled us with an entire Sorcery series, as well as other wordy delights like 80 Days, Heaven's Vault, Pendragon and Overboard. They are Inkle Studios co-founders John Ingold and Joseph Humphrey. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Are you both well and wrapped up nice and warm? We are. We do also appear to be both very well wrapped up and warm, wearing our winter jumpers. Yeah, still. it's Scandi, Scandi jumper day. <laughs> I think we are all wearing exactly. a variation of the same jumper, <laughs> more or less. Um, now, the last time we talked um, last year at some point, roughly in the middle of the year, I think, um, Overboard was just about to be announced. Um, and this was your surprise at the time, developed in a few months, reverse Agatha Christie-style murder mystery, um, where you tried to get away with, the, with murder on a cruise liner on the way to America, as we've all done in real life, uh, I'm sure. Naturally. Um, I mean, it's just a documentary series, really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did that all go in the end? How did the game uh, do? What was, what was the reception like? It went really well, actually. We we were so positively surprised. Like it was our first ever surprise release, and that seemed like a good idea up until about an hour before actually releasing it. When you think, <laughs> oh, what if this just does? You know that thing where you prepare a tweet that you think is really good, and then you finally tweet it, and it it just disappears, and you feel crushed. But that only kind of <laughs> scaled up quite a lot more. <laughs> um, but yeah, I. I have very happy memories of kind of releasing the fact of its existence into the world and just getting back all this kind of positivity from people who kind of were connected to us on US saying, oh, there's an, there's an Inkle game. Oh, wow. Oh, I, oh, people saying, oh, I heard about this game and I thought it was great. And then I noticed it was an Inkle game. And that was really, really lovely. Um, I but- think on, on top of the, the, the overall reception, I think it, what was amazing is just the overall development experience, like with most games that kind of go on for often years, like there's this sense in the middle of just a bit of kind of drudgery, just trying to struggle towards the finish line. Whereas with Overboard, because it was so short, it was just pure kind of like exhilaration the entire way through, because it was always like, oh, what's the feature we're adding today or this week? And then all the way up to the finish line and then just getting it out there. So... 
um yeah, yeah it was it, a, it had a wild really nice, ride it had a really nice kind of improvisationary feel to it didn't it they're like we just carried yeah, on making right. stuff up and doing stuff and then when it ran out of steam we stopped and we didn't hate it yet which is really unusual for <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly it was never hated that's, that's <laughs> yeah. amazing i remember you telling me that it had started almost at the beginning i think right at the beginning of 2021 um as a game to sort of refresh yourselves from the ongoing development um of the the highland game that you were making is that is that right yeah that's right so um it we we got this idea of of making a short game from somewhere just this 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 question of well how fast can you make a game when you know we've got all our pipelines we've got our tools and we know what we're good at like how quick how quickly can we do this? I think originally we were thinking, can we make a game in a month? Is that a thing we could just do? Um, and obviously it didn't take a month, but it only <laughs> took three. Uh, but yeah, it was, It. I, I think as New Year came around, we still didn't know that Overboard existed. Wow. And then by by midsummer, it was out in the world. Um, yeah, I, I kind of the thing I feel most sad about looking back on it really is that then Christmas came around and we hadn't done another one. <laughs> I kind of thought, oh, right, I should just be <laughs> this should just be what we do now. But um, but it turns out that there's a little bit of a kind of wind down after a project like that where you kind of can't be quite so creative. But so the question um, is now we're in January 2022. Has the same thing happened again? <laughs> well, if it had, we couldn't possibly tell you, could we? Because <laughs> so, that would define the whole point. I um, don't mind if you do. <laughs> no, I mean, on a more serious note, I mean, like, we are, like, now kind of really quite deeply into the, the Highland project. So, uh, mm. and kind of we're working towards some kind of more public um, release of information about that. So yeah. we're quite think... excited that that's now finally on the horizon i think one thing that was that was particular about last winter as well internally is that the highland game joe's kind of leading that one and he was still very much working out some of the core mechanics and the way things worked so there was actually it was difficult for us all to be working on that project at that time because there wasn't necessarily enough work that we could do without a risk of throwing a lot of it away Mm. Um, whereas mm. right now it's kind of the other way up in that like <laughs> there's really quite a lot we should be doing um so if mm. we were to do a side project now it would be a slightly diversionary tactic um so overboard was just the right size project to kind of fit into the wider scope of things that's not as exciting a story to tell as the one that we like to tell <laughs> but it, you know it is true um yeah. so how is how is development going on on, on the highland game because it it had while you were, I remember us talking and you were saying that it, it was quite hard because it was a kind of mechanic led game almost. You, it was quite hard to find or really distill that core mechanic feeling in the game, which was part of the reason it was taking a little time. It just needed more thinking about. But is, is development smoother now? How, how's that going? Yeah, I mean, I think um, at this point, I mean, it's. It's something that we're still experimenting with, but we do actually have like a sort of a vertical slice, okay. albeit one that needs to be refined and we need to test it on people and work out exactly where the hard edges are. And But but we've definitely got to the point where like in the past um, couple of months, we occasionally just play from the beginning and go, and you actually start to get this experience. It's like you when when 
when we design games, we sort of have this picture in our head of how we want the player to feel when they play the game. And then you sort of construct the, the, the game around that feeling you're trying to create. And so there's very much a kind of a, almost like a technical exercise of uh, putting all the pieces together, but you don't ever feel that target feeling you are aiming for until way down the line. And so to suddenly play the game and go, oh, it's actually <laughs> echoing back that kind of dream I had like two years ago is a really exciting point to get to. Yeah, um, I was watching. Yeah, I... Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think we might be quite unusual in a studio as a studio because we don't really design mechanics up front very much at all. Mm. So there's a heck of a lot of trying things, figuring them out, taking them out again um, to try and find yeah. that core feel. I think part of that is like about um, like because because we're a narrative led studio, we sort of we kind of picture a scenario and a world before we kind of like work on the mechanics to build towards that, which uh, many designers would tell you is the wrong <laughs> thing to do. Um, I was watching the Game Makers Toolkit series that Mark Brown's been doing where he's learning to make a game. And it what, just watching it made me think, oh, this is his first time, but he's doing the right <laughs> thing. We're doing the wrong thing. Um, but I'm, at, at the same time, it's also, it makes me very jealous because what like on the one hand he's doing it really well but it also it makes me feel like oh I wish I could do it that way because you're sort of it's not easier because clearly it's it's still very difficult but on the other hand you're sort of it's 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 a path of lower resistance somehow I think um because you're you're just following the mechanics where they where they lead you um whereas it's it sort of a very much an uphill struggle the the way around that we do it no pun intended um so <laughs> i was watching um an animation sort of test video it was part of a diary that um joseph you had posted on uh, your blog and uh, it shows this kind of hand-drawn or sort of pencil-drawn character um running along a kind of 2d um hill highlands type environment and mm -hmm. then clambering up uh, what turns out to be quite a steep kind of climb and then getting to the top and leaning over and huffing out of breath um, in exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And it's gorgeous. Uh, how indicative is that of, of, of the game, of, of the kind of thing we'll be doing in the game? Can people see that and go, oh, okay, I get an idea of what the game is going to be? Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> definitely one solid, like, portion of it. Like, I would say that's like, um, it's hard to put your finger on it, but it's probably like uh, a third of the types of activities okay. you'll be doing in the game. There's there's one activity that's like um, quite a major part that we're going to be announcing quite soon. Um, I can't really say anything about, but um, one major part is also obviously the narrative that we haven't really shown anything of just yet um that it still has the kind of the the inkle core of storytelling right about it because i wondered about that because um something for me and i think we talked about this before but something for me i've always enjoyed walking because it's a sort of moment where you or where i can drift off mm. and be between mm. places and never it's a sort of gray area that i can uh, uh, drift off in and i think 
walking has that kind of appeal for people but it seems to me something that is tricky to pin a narrative on when it's this sort of speculative walk so i wondered how Inkle's DNA is obviously, you know, narrative and story, but I wondered how you would put that in the game. So it's nice to hear that that's obviously still a strong part of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, John. <laughs> yeah, so that has been. <laughs> this is basically what John's been struggling with yeah. for the past few <laughs> so years. That has been really, 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 really hard, actually, because, yeah, you go for a walk and nothing happens. That's the point of going for a walk. Um, <laughs> and you know depending on where you're walking yeah i mean i guess but like you know you can't constantly be running along an exploding bridge or whatever like the whole time <laughs> um so definitely part of my solution to this problem has been to make a game called overboard and to write a couple of novels <laughs> like to do anything else but uh which you know joe has dealt with uh admirably um i think that uh again it's about finding that core feel though like what a narrative is can be very different from game to game like something like overboard is all about human beings and people and interactions and connections and collisions within a tight space but but something like heaven's vault really isn't actually like heaven's vault was a very similar problem that you walk around these archaeological sites that have been buried for thousands of years it doesn't really matter what you do there because it's all everybody's gone like it's long gone um, so to find the narrative heart of Heaven's Vault, to find the things that the player could be doing that worked and made sense within that setting, that weren't just destroying everything, because normally archaeology stories are about archaeologists going into temples and they collapse around them, like, <laughs> without fail. That happens in every episode of Mysterious Cities of Gold. And that's not okay. Like, that's not actually telling an archaeological story. So it took a long time to find that. So I kind of recognised this phase on... Uh, the Highland game of kind of trying a narrative a bit like this or trying it like this or trying it like this and finding well, that one doesn't work for this reason and that one doesn't and that kind of has a shade of something good in it and recently it's been feeling like oh yeah I see it now I get how this works and there's still quite a lot of creative work to do but it makes a lot more sense to me but it's definitely been really challenging to find that balance but mm -hmm. but like i think finding interesting balances between things is probably like really at the heart of what everything that we do actually it's like you know because mm -hmm. it's all about it's all about tensions that's where you get interesting um imaginative spaces from you know 80 days is a tension between the joy of exploring somewhere and running very quickly around the world and it's the pull between those two things that makes that game work if it was just go to a city take as long as you like it wouldn't work and if it was just <laughs> rushing and never stopping it wouldn't work either you have to have both of those forces um so i think that the pull between kind of the sense of narrative and humanity and people and then the openness and the wilderness and the space of the highlands is a really interesting pair of magnetic poles to kind of find a space mm -hmm. between and it's yeah it's it's definitely hard but i think there's something there i think there's something there yeah. i think what's one of one of the most tricky things about making a game in the highlands is that it is such an empty wilderness and um one of john's major strengths is making games about people talking to more people and uh, <laughs> and so i think i think uh one what was interesting about what, what you said bertie about um kind of going for a walk and kind of being almost with yourself and in a gray space is that 
uh, although you're not necessarily unless you're going for a walk with someone you might not be talking to anyone but you sort of start to have an internal monologue and so it's not like they're and there's also danger I mean especially in the Scottish Highlands I think people forget just how kind of wild and dangerous it can be if you're not prepared and so there can definitely be kind of um drama that happens outside of kind of human contact in terms of the dangers but then there's also sort of um the more you're on your own the more you're sort of you start to get voices in your head of like what you, you might say to someone or what you would have said to someone 10 years ago in that mm. that conversation that you had um or thinking about your family or your friends uh, and so we can sort of start to materialize these things as being a bit more um, kind of concrete um, in the narrative. And so we kind of um, have themes of family and, and the past and kind of memories and stuff that kind of comes through in the narrative. Oh, lovely. I can't remember if last time we spoke, I think it was before I, I went to the Scottish Highlands last summer. I went on a, on a road trip. Um, and it took my breath away. Um, mm. It's hard to explain to people just how kind of awesome it is when you're standing mm -hmm. there because it's, mm -hmm. it's not often something you can fit into a picture because it's all around you. It's like yeah. the locks and the, the valleys and the hills stretch everywhere yeah, you can absolutely. see and they dwarf you. Um, uh, yeah, and what, what's quite surprising is that you, you might visit, um, say, the, the Alps, and they're they're much larger, and yet there's something a lot more scary about the Scottish Highlands, just because parts of the Highlands are just so empty that they can feel larger, even but just because the space is somehow mm. larger. Like I remember the first time I went walking in the Alps uh, with my brother when I was eighteen, and we we were kind of walking up a hill for like eight hours and then we got to a road and someone drove past and it's like such a sense of disappointment for me <laughs> like compared with my experiences of the highlands where like you just walk away from the road for 45 minutes and you can get seriously lost and in trouble actually because you know if it gets a bit misty if you just walk down the wrong spur of a hill then suddenly you're you just don't know where you are um so yeah there's definitely a and and also the darkness of the, the the highlands and the kind of the way that like although they're not kind of jaggy jagged alpine mountains this the kind of the rounded dark shape of the hills um can they they do feel like you said they're kind of awesome and kind of um like really heavy feeling yeah um because you mentioned there you're going for walks and and you being in the highland i remember you saying that the idea, I think, for this game came very much from your youth, from from going walking in the Highlands. Is is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there was one particular walk that I I went on with um, friends from school where we did get quite lost, and uh, yeah, I, I it was around the time I think it was about a year after the Lord of the Rings came it's out. Very Lord of the Rings teenage... landscape. Right, exactly. Like my 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 teenage friends uh, at that age were also a little a little bit foolish <laughs> in that they sort of had this. Do you do you remember the scene in um, the Fellowship of the? I've just rewatched the, the Ring so... where they're sort of 
Right, okay, where they're kind of running over hills in order to, like, I can't remember where, where they were going at the time, but, like, but my friends thought, oh, yeah, let's do that. That that will be that will be awesome. Like, we got lost, and they're like, oh, let's just run up this hill and have a look from there. And so, of course, we were then split up and going in different directions. And it was actually, like, pitch dark by the time, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, we we um we were picked up by a deer stalker um who kind of drove us over like two mountains in his land rover <laughs> um and then dropped us off where we knew where we were but it was pitch black by that point and then we were just kind of like stumbling through a valley and through bogs and through like uh dark woodland uh to get back to the car but it it was genuinely terrifying. <laughs> I can imagine it seems to have left quite a um, a profound kind of impression upon you. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, and, and and actually, he was telling stories to us, of course, just to terrify us. Of like, oh, over in that valley is where like a boy fell off a waterfall <laughs> and died one year. Like, oh, okay, good man, good man. That's good to know. I like to feel that that's what I would do in that situation help but also try and terrify them it's what's called yeah. a teach a teachable moment <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully we're going to see some more of uh, of the is it called the highland game is it is that its official name or is it still awaiting uh uh we're just about to announce the name of the fantastic. game uh but not quite there but well it's possible that by the time this podcast comes out we would have uh, announced it. Is but, it? Uh, it's probably going to be two or three. Is weeks, it Joseph's so. foolish adventure? <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've also um, been busy, John. I'm looking at you here, uh, particularly by writing books, uh, which seems entirely appropriate um, given what you do. Um, Heaven's Vault books, uh, to be specific. Now, I find these really interesting because um, I've got them actually. I don't know if you can see. There's a couple of black books just just there. Uh, on myself okay, lovely. Um, yeah. and uh, they're really interesting because they tell the story um, of the game but almost as if you're playing the game yourself so there's dialogue which I assume has been taken from the game um, and is now here as well but they also expand upon what happens in the game I think there are some new characters and locations and, and adventures and things like that but that's an approach I hadn't seen before. When where did this idea come from? Um, I'm not really sure. There was some point during lockdown when I realised that my children were not getting up in the morning, so I didn't need to get <laughs> up in the morning, which meant it didn't matter what time I went to bed. So, kind of in the quiet hours in the evening when my household was quiet, I would just like to retreat into something else and just. I, I was writing more because I felt like writing, but I didn't know what to write. Okay. But the world of Heaven's Vault and the kind of the characters, especially the kind of core dynamic of Aaliyah and, and the robot six, like it was so strong in my head when we were making that game and making the game didn't quite get rid of it. They, they, they're still there. So I kind of after the game finished, there was about a year maybe that went by. And then I, I kind of thought, oh, I, I still kind of miss that world and I miss the the themes and the the kind of resonances of that world. And I miss the arguments that these two characters have. So I started writing them more just to, just to spend time 
with these characters that I liked really and I kind of thought well I don't know that I'm going to seriously turn this into a novel but at least I don't have to decide what happens next and that got me through maybe a quarter of the book or so and then at that point I started to realize that books and games are really very differently structured in that in a game you can quite often just present the player with an environment and they'll go and explore it because it's there and they should look around whereas if you do that in a book it doesn't work a book <laughs> character always has to know why they're doing what they're doing they have to really be motivated to do it otherwise the book is just rambling um, it really everything has to be pushed the whole time in a way that games actually don't have to do so then I started to think about the plotting a bit more carefully and then I started to get excited about the plotting and at that point I was just having so much fun um, that I was kind of looking forward to my evening. So it would kind of get to 11 o'clock at night and I would pack everybody off to bed and I would say, oh yeah, I'll be go along bed, in a bit and then kind of pop my headphones on and kind of write. I think I was trying to write maybe maybe like a thousand words a day or 500 words a day or something, but it was, it was quite regular. It was quite a regular, I've never been a disciplined writer, but I was really trying to actually be a disciplined writer and it just got longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. Um, because it's two books, it was just, so it's, it's not Yeah, just well, Originally, I just I just started writing and saw where I got to, and the the final word count is like one hundred eighty thousand words, which is really very long. Actually, it's about two it's about two novels, and it splits nicely in the middle. <laughs> and like partly, I, we could have shipped it as a single novel, but by shipping it as two novels, we get to design two front covers, which is really <laughs> lovely. <laughs> and, I love doing, by the way. And, but there's such it's, a there's, it's... It's genuinely like super exciting to be able to produce a physical item when you're a game developer. Like mm. you spend like decades of your life working on things that aren't really very real at all. And then you make something that you can actually touch and hold and smell. And oh, yeah, I, just, I love the fact that in, really fi in 50 years time, no one is going to be able to play Heaven's Vault on anything unless something very dramatic mm. changes in the way that games mm. and computers work are archived whereas the books might actually survive which is kind of mm, amazing true. really i thought i wasn't thinking about that at the time so so yeah it, and it was kind of really interesting to go back to the game and try and pull out what i thought were the the better threads and like the better bits of dialogue and like i didn't really look at the files very much i mostly just wrote it from memory because you know it's all it's all still there um and kind of to to tease the best plot i could out of what we had and towards the end I started inventing more stuff to make it more interesting and I think that's my prerogative really so yeah no it, I well I'm glad you enjoyed it anyway it, it, was, it was so much fun to write <laughs> um, and so that came out in November last year I yeah. think um, and has that done okay has that reached people or is that so when we released it we had no sense of how it would do just none at all like we've done merchandising type stuff before you know we, we used to sell mugs from the sorcery game and i think we sold about 30 or something like that i didn't we thought know that this i would have enough. bought one well you didn't so there we go <laughs> <laughs> we don't make them anymore um and we just uh yesterday sold our thousandth copy wow. of the heaven vault novels which i think is extraordinary yeah. um like it's not bestseller lists, but like for a self-published book with basically no publicity behind it beyond the game itself, I, I I couldn't be happier really. And like I suspect a lot of those people will put it on their shelf and admire it as an object and enjoy the art, and that's fine. And then a percentage of people will actually start reading it, and then a percentage of people will actually finish reading it because that's what books are like. And perhaps some of them will even enjoy it. So maybe some people have actually enjoyed the book as well. But that's okay. I'm happy. Yeah. 
it's just kind of amazing to get the opportunity to be able to do something like this that we definitely wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago. Like um, I was listening to your previous discussion with the creator of Unpacking and one of the themes was like, uh, uh, like, has it been life-changing for you? And in a way, although like we haven't had quite the same financial successes as they seem to have had on that game, like it's kind of life-changing for us that throughout Inkle, we've got to the point where John can just choose to go off and write a novel and for people to get really excited about it. Like, like that's, you can't just do that as, as a writer. Like you have to get an agent, you have to get a publisher and you have like no guarantees of any kind of success. And to be able to self publish this and have more than just like your mum buy it, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Really. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I wrote plenty of books as Joe knows, I wrote plenty of books before we founded Inkle. It was a kind of thing I did in my spare time and it was a complete waste of time <laughs> except for the purposes of getting better at writing. And I remember just as I was coming to the end of, of the draft of Heaven's Vault thinking, well, I should probably now start sending it to agents and start sending it to publishers. But there was this voice in my head telling me that, well, every time I've ever had any success as a writer, it's been by ignoring the mainstream system completely and just doing it for myself, doing it for ourselves. Like, you know, we, Joe and I in the studio system for games tried to make interesting games and they always got clobbered and they always got kiboshed and they always got diverted into things we didn't want to do because there's a lot of people above you in the structure. But we found our own thing and here we are doing perfectly well. So it kind of felt like, oh, screw it. We might as well just self-publish this damn thing because at least that way we can actually stand a chance and do it ourselves. And like, I don't know, self-publishing has a bad rap, which is probably understandable. But I'm pretty pleased with it. I'm pretty happy with it. And it, yeah, yeah. It's just having any kind of platform is an amazing privilege, really. Um, mm -hmm. exactly. I think it's lovely. And even if people um, are, are buying it as a sort of um, memento of an experience they enjoyed, or you know, may, maybe that they missed or whatever, that it's still there on their shelf. You know, it's still there as like a collector's mm. item. And mm. then you know they read it, and it's a thousand people. Um, that have done that as well yeah so. yeah and you know books they do have a long life they they share around they travel mm. um you know you, you don't know how many people are gonna are gonna look at it but it'll be more than the number of people that bought it and i don't know it's fine it's just not it's lovely to have stuff out there that's that's kind of the real joy of it and it was really nice to be able to <laughs> to prove to myself that I could write a novel with a beginning, a middle and an end that ties up nightly. Because I haven't actually really done that before. So I did write books before we founded Inkle, but I'm not sure they were very good. So like, it was kind of <laughs> nice to prove that I can actually do this. That was kind of a, quite a good personal milestone as well. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to write another though. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> you will, you yeah. will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Joseph, you, um, you were talking then about... Um, 10 years ago um, and looking back in your past, because last year um, Inkle did turn 10 years old. I think, in fact, it was around November. Mm. Uh, happy birthday. Um, I, have, I haven't got you a <laughs> present. You. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> please don't hold it against me. I Rude. could sing you a song. I, I, happy birthday. Um, did you do something nice to celebrate? Um, remember, we? we put a picture on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Does that count? Yeah. We're all we're all a bit distributed now. We all because there's the studio is mm. now three people. I'm in Cambridge. Joe's in Leicester. Annie's in Manchester or near Manchester anyway. 
Um, mm -hmm. We very rarely mm -hmm. meet up, actually. So, and of course, there's all the lockdowns mm. and the pandemics yeah. and all the rest of it. And we have far too many children. So, yeah, I don't mm. know. We <laughs> I don't think we even had a phone call. <laughs> we probably should have had a phone. Yeah, call. we we used to do a yearly thing in the in the early years. We used to celebrate it properly and like rent a space and invite all of our friends and everyone mm. we'd worked with. But it wasn't really very possible um, last year. Mm. Um, but we were, I mean, yeah, we're celebrating in our heads. We're like, we're genuinely really proud to have got to the 10 year milestone. I mean, yeah. it's astonishing, it's really. Kind of it's like, we're still here. We're still going. <laughs> That's like 10 years is ages. Because it's a chunky milestone. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, obviously it's the longest that I've worked anywhere at all because I'm not old enough to have worked 10 years anywhere else. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's genuinely remarkable. It takes me by surprise quite often actually um yeah i think you're cutting out a little bit there are you still with us john i think so <laughs> disappearing ah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> you're back yeah um okay um it's just your camera feed has dropped a little but we'll carry on because obviously people um are still listening so it's a good moment to kind of rewind a little bit uh, back to actually i want to go a bit further to than when you first met to to when you were growing up um because i like seeing where people's passion for games and the things they make uh comes from so john i suppose uh first Actually, while well, John's connection is a bit funny, we'll go to Joseph uh, first, <laughs> just in case. Um, so, Joseph, um, let's track your enthusiasm for, for games and things. When, when you kind of travel back through your life, where does this passion for kind of games, making games and telling and stories begin? When is that moment in, in your life? So um, it's from a very early age, I think, um... So my parents have always had um, Apple Mac computers okay. throughout my entire life. So that's very much coloured the the type of uh, games that I've played. Like I used to play SNES at friends' houses and stuff, but um, I I don't really have much of a traditional gaming background, except except for I guess the um, uh, the games that that got ported to Mac. Like so, I played like Monkey Island and Myst. And um, but then, then there's also very specific Mac um, game experiences that people who have um, had Macs as kids will remember, like Escape Velocity, um, and then like the, the the Bungie games before they became famous. Um, so there's Marathon, of which like a lot of the DNA went on to uh, go into Halo. Um, and I think my favorite game when I was a kid was. Um, myth which was sort of like this real-time strategy is I think they used to call it more tactics and strategy because it was less about base building and more about um, uh, kind of the, the the tactics of commanding a smaller squad like a small army um, and they had this really nice kind of rock paper scissor uh, mechanic of having like various units that um that were useful against each other but i think um 
one of the things that really stuck with me about that game is like it was it was the beauty of the the landscapes and the narrative that kind of bound it together to create like an experience that that wasn't purely about the mechanics but also about the the kind of the to- the emotional tone of it i think um yeah but going all the way going further back actually um yeah my my parents had a black and white Apple classic computer. Um, and so the partly the creativity comes from um, messing around with um, HyperCard, which was this sort of, it was an amazing tool that you have to sort of have used to be able to understand how powerful it was at the time, because it, um, it existed before the web, but it sort of had uh, hyperlinking um, in it. It was the, the model was that you'd have like this stack of um, cards and you could draw pictures on each one and like put text and buttons and stuff on each one and then you could sort of link them together and add little scripts to it um, and so when I was a kid like at like age 10 I was making these adventure games where you kind of draw a little black and white picture on each card and then you'd make an invisible button so when you click somewhere it would link you and take you to another room and um, uh I was never very good at coding, even though I do all the coding now at Inkle. <laughs> I was never very good at coding as a kid, and but my my older brother was really good at that. So he made kind of a system to to do things like inventory and stuff like that. Wow. Um, so was your mind made up as as a ten year old? Were you like, I'm going to make games when I get older? That I've sorted. I know what I'm going to do. I think it, it didn't real, really feel very real until I was like 16 or something when my friend said to me, um, so are you going to be a game developer when you grow up? I was like, no, <laughs> don't be stupid. It's like, do you want to be a rock star or something? It's just, just completely ridiculous suggestion. But then that's the moment where it started to kind of stick with me. Um, uh, and although I st- even when I went to university, it wasn't, I wasn't like 100% sure. So I didn't do it. So I did computer science um, and I didn't, I specifically chose not to do like a video game development degree, even though um, they had just started then. There was like the Abate games course um, back then that I specifically chose not to do just in case I would grow out of this (laughs) silly video game habit. Um, But then I applied for a job at Rare. Um, while I was at university, and uh, yeah, they gave me a job uh, right after I graduated. So, what, so I was what era rare is this? This was just the start of Xbox 360. So, the first day I joined, um, they had me kind of play around with um, an Xbox One. No, no, it's not called an Xbox One. The first Xbox. Ah, okay. <laughs> I was playing with a dev kit. Uh, uh, but then very quickly we were kind of doing Xbox 360 stuff. Although I actually never worked on an Xbox 360 game because at the time they still had a Nintendo DS division. Um, and so actually the very first game that I shipped was uh, Diddy Kong Racing DS. Ah. <laughs> Which was kind of a weird phase in uh, Rare or Microsoft's history where they were kind of Microsoft was making a Nintendo DS game. Wow. Um, okay. Um, yeah. We'll pause there because I think you go to Sony after this or? Is... 
Um, so yeah, right after Rare, so I, I made one more game at Rare, which was the Viva Pinata DS, um, and then I went to move to Sony. Yeah, after four years, okay, which is where I met John. Okay, we'll pause there and then uh, we'll we'll track back uh, with John. So John, um, how about you? How far? Do you track your kind of enthusiasm for games um, and, and telling stories? Is there a point that it kind of crystallizes in your head and you're like, that's So it. I think, yeah, I think I've been telling stories forever. Like, I think I used to say that my love of t- writing stories started as a love of lying. When I was small, <laughs> I used to tell lies a lot. Um, I remember telling my classmates when I was six years old that I I didn't have a nationality because I'd been born on a train between the (laughs) Finnish and Swedish borders. Um, And I convinced all of them. Looking back, I don't know how I convinced them because there is no gap between the Finnish and Swedish border. There is no no man's land you can be born in. It's just a line. But, um, you know, details like that don't trouble you when you're six. Uh, I told all my friends at school my middle name. I don't have a middle name. I told them it was Spitfire. (laughs) (laughs) So for years, I was, uh, my friends called me Spitfire Um, and so on and so forth. Uh, Games was a a different thing. I think we started off with fighting fantasy books, actually. I think we read, my brother was reading fighting fantasy books and telling me how amazing they were. And I was not allowed to, my brothers, my elder brothers like to say, oh, he likes to say, I've got this wonderful thing, but you're far too young for it, so you can't have any. Bye. And <laughs> that was one of his ways of being a kind and sympathetic older brother. So I would go and tell people, choose your own adventure games in the playground, probably about age seven, I think. Um, though I'd never actually read one. And I just kind of had this vague idea that you kind of gave people choices and they said things. So I was doing choice-based fiction as a tiny, tiny thing. Um then we couldn't afford a computer when I was growing up. So I used to get books about computer programming from the library and write computer programs in a notebook, which is quite tragic, really. But there we go. Um, so I taught myself to program, but I didn't teach myself to debug, which I think is still true. Joe would probably <laughs> agree. <laughs> um, and then eventually we got one and we had a few games and they were all Infocom text adventure games. So I played like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and that was very hard. And I played Sorcerer and I played Enchanter and these games that very few people have heard of or kind of a niche of people have heard of, but they really were wonderful. Um, there's one called Plundered Hearts, which is a pirate romance where you play uh, a lady who's kind of escaped from one pirate and ended up becoming a pirate queen. And it's just brilliant. And it's all done through this typing interface. But there's if you can get past that, the the level of expressiveness and kind of immersion you can have within the narrative space of the game is still pretty extraordinary, actually. And I feel like a lot of games are still reaching and occasionally obtaining this thing that was just casually being delivered in the the late 80s by this interface, so long as you could learn it. Um, Because you had to know how to talk to the computer, which obviously was a whole language, really. Uh, And then I discovered inform which was a language for writing text adventures so i started writing text adventures when i was about 16 i guess wow um and i kind of carried on doing that but all the time i wanted to be a writer i wasn't thinking of games as a serious career path it was just a thing it was just a way of getting things written i think and a kind of thing i was interested in designing but you become a math teacher yeah well i went to university and i did a maths degree and i didn't know what to do and this opportunity to become a math teacher sort of turned up i remember going to my interview and the headmaster at the school um, it was quite a nice 
posh public private school. I, I didn't train as a teacher. They just accepted people with maths degrees. And so I sat down in this interview and he said, well, why do you want to become a teacher? And I said, I don't think I do want to become <laughs> a teacher. I just, you know, I quite like maths. And for some reason they gave me the job. Um, and I did that for five years and it was awesome and really, really, really good for me. Like, because I was quite a shy, I didn't talk very much. And you go in front of a room of 17 year olds over and over and over and over again and after a while you just lose that shyness um especially because they were much like better off and more erudite and articulate and richer than me <laughs> so like and i was only 21 22 so i really had to do quite a lot of acting to look even slightly like a teacher as opposed to just some guy um i don't know how much i got away with it uh so i was writing all the time while i was teaching as well and still making text adventure games and then at some point i left teaching because I felt like I, I'd been doing, I'd got the hang of it and I didn't need to do it anymore. And I kind of thought, okay, I'll take a punt and I'll write a novel and I'll, I'll just focus on that for the moment. I'll take some time. And what actually happened was I started hassling the Sony studio, which I'd got a contact via a friend of a friend of a friend. I'd got the contact of the studio director and I knew they were working on narrative stuff. And I just began phoning them up every couple of weeks <laughs> to ask if I could have a job. And eventually they gave me a job, which I, I can't recommend that as a strategy. If anyone did that to Inkle, I'd be very annoyed with them. But um, yeah, and that got me into Sony. But I still didn't think it was a serious career, I don't think. So you both found yourself at <laughs> Sony. And, and from what I remember, you were, you were making a game about a person's life like the cycle of their life or something like that is that is that right yeah yeah i was hired to work on a game which the idea it took you from being a baby to an old person and it was fully immersive and fully interactive and 3d and totally narrative and obviously never got beyond the prototype stage because that's an enormously complicated project like <laughs> with a ridiculous art budget was this a play um, playstation 2 game this yeah this was during the playstation 2 era when they were just they genuinely believed that the hardware could do anything um you know grand theft auto had come out shadow of the colossus had come out and they just thought oh wow this machine is magic it can just generate any any level of complexity or emotion <laughs> that you want a playstation 2 can do it that was genuinely the belief um I think I was there when the PlayStation 3 launched and all the developers kind of made this sour lemon face when they saw its architecture and went, oh, no, because <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard to make anything work on a PlayStation 3. And, then, and that was a bit of a slump. But yeah. Do you remember Did... uh, meeting each other for the first time? Yes. Uh, yeah, quite Dude. clearly. Like I joined after John and... Um... Yeah, we were, so the, we, we were making um, a party game at the time, but like uh, the moment I sat down next to uh, John, we just started chatting about like, um, I think it was Heavy Rain or Fahrenheit that had come out. And we were already like within, you know, the first 10 minutes talking about like, oh, how would we improve that kind of narrative experience like, or like improve a... Uh, uh, the dialogue system in heavy rain. And... How would you? Yeah, it's yeah. true. Within, <laughs> within about 15 minutes, we had, well, the problem is this, and it needs to be doing this. And of course it could be doing that. And oh, by the way, have you played this? No, have you played that? Have you played this? Have you played that? Um, yeah, that's true. So I suppose it's um, an immediate friendship. That yeah, sounds nice. I mean, yes, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess like, you know, as with all kind of like colleague work workplace relationships it sort of starts as kind of a uh a friendly like 
morning how's it going let's talk about a few games and then but then it kind of developed into a proper friendship exactly yeah um, i was very cautious about friendships at sony i don't know why i had this real sense of like i wasn't quite sure if i fitted in i remember i didn't invite joe to my wedding <laughs> yeah, i was my... just about to say <laughs> <I'm glad laughs> you <said it. laughs> yeah. uh, my wife said are you sure you don't want to invite joe to your wedding and i was like oh i don't know maybe <laughs> but we didn't so I, I, I but it was literally it. around that time that i guess like it turned from like friendly colleague to actual friendship exactly. yeah yeah I, I have never formally apologized for that though, so this is my formal <laughs> and now it's a public apology <laughs> yeah, well, you know the best kind right <laughs> so do you remember where this friendship friendship starts to become do you want to make a studio with me i can't remember exactly how that mm. happened but i do like i do remember a conversation where like I think at, at the time I was more serious than John. Mm. <laughs> and I, I was saying, so John, are we seriously, I'm being serious about this. Are you being serious? I don't <laughs> think you're being serious. Well, I think uh, Joe had this idea that he wanted to start a company. Like you said, you wanted to do a business, like a couple of friends had done one and you kind of had this idea that it was a thing you could do. So you genuinely had mm. that kind of ambition. Whereas I really, really didn't. I remember sitting in the park and you saying, no, I don't, I, I, do you want to do this or not? And me going, well, I'm not really sure. And my wife saying, that's John saying, yes, he would. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, is it? And she was like, yeah, that is definitely you saying that you want to do this. And I was like, are you sure? And she was like, yeah, shut up. Johnny does want to. <laughs> um, yeah. And she was right, to be fair. Uh, it was, but yeah. So what was yeah, it? It was kind of, it was kind of weird. I, I, I think I was in I'm sort of interested in starting companies as a as a concept. I remember like looking at like business books in the local library like mm. years before without it really seeming like a real thing that I would ever do. Uh, and then it yeah it wasn't until a, a friend actually left um Sony to for, to make his own company that it was like it went click in my head and I realized that it it's something you can really do mm. no you, you did seem to know what you were talking about when we were doing it because I had no idea what was going on <laughs> like you could well have been just going yeah now now you need to give me 30,000 pounds and now I'm off <laughs> don't so worry you'll see an in you'll see 100% return um, what is what are the first days of a business like so you've you've agreed to make the business then then what happens? And, and, and are you, do you all of a sudden find yourself on the first day sitting there going, okay, like we've made a business, like now what? It, it's a very weird feeling the very first day because um, you sort of quit your job and it takes a very long time to feel like you're not just like, just at home and just messing about <laughs> because you've, if, if you spent like, I think I'd spent what six years working for like proper corporations um, that like, and so when you leave and then you then you just kind of just go and work on your laptop on Monday morning in your pajamas, like it definitely doesn't feel real, and it doesn't really help that the way that you actually literally start a company is just like you fill out a form online and it's kind of trivial, and I think it's even easier now than it used to be. Like you used to have to go to a, like a third party company that does company formation. But nowadays I think you can just go onto like the company's house website and just like fill in a form and you're done basically. It's, and it's free. I think it didn't used mm. to be free. Um, and I, I so, remember the, yeah. you know, the early days of it 
we were mostly going to meetings with publishers because we had this idea mm. we could make we could use interaction that we'd learned about from games and then put it into a book publishing context and that would ah. be a market that had no idea about games and so we could kind of be market leaders in that space and people were sort of interested in digital publishing at the time so it seemed like an interesting thing to do it wasn't actually a game studio when we started and so we would go to meetings with publishers and have conversations which would range from them not having a clue what we were talking about to them sort of seeming really enthusiastic and then saying the thing that publishers say which is yeah we'll definitely do something about this and then not doing anything about it um and i don't know it must have been three or four months until we actually landed a project with anyone mm. so um, the first project is this the the frankenstein project yeah that's right yeah so this is a collaboration with with dave morris um uh, what's that like because um he you know, is uh, he? I think he wrote a, fa a, fan a fighting fantasy book um, way back when. Is, is is he a kind of old hero of yours? Was he a name that you'd known? So, yeah, Dave has written an enormous amount of um, choose your own adventure type stuff. So he, yeah, he wrote a couple of fighting fantasy books. I think he wrote several series of his own. Um, I knew him from the Nightmare books, actually. Nightmare, ah. the old TV series about the, the boy in the helmet being guided <laughs> around a fake computer game, which sounds so... Eight. I was describing it to my kids, and they were like, I don't get it. Is there a, Are there blades on the wall, or are there not blades on the wall? And we were like, we don't know, but probably not. <laughs> um, so he wrote some game books and some novels based on those, and I got them when I was a kid, so I knew his name from that. Um but he wasn't really a hero as such, but I kind of recognised his name. Like our, my hero in that space was Steve Jackson, who we did okay. obviously meet when, when we did Sorcery. Um, so Frankenstein was actually really, to be to be accurate, it was completely Dave's idea. Dave and his partner, Jamie Thompson, his, his work partner. Um, and they'd been pitching it to the publisher profile books, but they didn't have a technology pipeline for doing it they didn't really have a way of building it they just had this concept of a thing that one could do and then about the same time we had a meeting with the same guy from profile books and say look we've got this technology that delivers interactive fiction and lets you write it we don't really have anything to write but we could you know come up with ideas and he sort of went oh these two things that both appeared in my i can put them together job done <laughs> um he's a lovely guy but i it wasn't it wasn't the most difficult project for him to pull together, I think. And then we supplied the technology and Joe did the, the art and the graphic design for Frankenstein. And Dave wrote it. I didn't really do very much for that project, I think, at all. I think I wrote the manual and then <laughs> that was my contribution. <laughs> so, um, so this technology was Ink, the, the technology? Yeah, it okay. was the very, very first version of Ink, yeah. So um, one of the, pretty much the first thing we did, actually, when we started the company was Joe... Mm -hmm. We'd sort of talked about different interfaces, but we designed a uh, a runtime structure for storing interactive data so you could do choices and text. And it was written in a, a file format called JSON, which is a bit like HTML. And Joe was like, well, I think you can just write this by hand and then we can put it in the game. And I was like, I can't write that by hand. It's disgusting. Maybe I could write it like this and then make a little script that just puts the tags in for me. And that was the first version of Ink. Ah. Um, was really just something to just turn slightly simpler markup into slightly more ugly computer-friendly markup. Um, and it was but yeah, when we founded Inkle, the core idea is that we were going to make this um, almost like a white label product right. called an Inkle book, basically that that we'd had that we'd try to sell to publishers, and they would put various um, content from like maybe existing IP that we'd adapt 
And so we'd have a series of Inkle books, it would be the idea, and that Frankenstein was going to be the first Inkle book. Okay. Um, and so we were trying, so we did have kind of this skeleton structure there um, that you would write in ink, it would get compiled, we'd do a, a visual skin, add a few kind of like maybe bespoke elements for each project that we did. Um, but that that was kind of like, the business plan <laughs> if there was we one. had a business um, we had a business model yes exactly. yeah. um, and exciting. then that business model just turned into we like making indie games <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so frankenstein yeah. is made is this is this still you still have the same plan that you want to make games of this type when you somehow come in contact with steve jackson i mean how did how did that come about? Did, did you bump into him somewhere? Did so, you approach him? No, we, um, uh, I have a friend from the parser based world, uh, a lady called Emily Short, who's really very well known. She works at Fail Better right now. Um, and but at the time she was founding a company with a guy whose his name is Richard. I've forgotten his full name. He worked on The Sims. He was an AI programmer on The Sims. He's a very, very clever guy. And they had a prototype of this dynamically generated AI-driven conversation system multiplayer thing, which uh, eventually became a thing called Versu, which um, fell, fell apart, basically, because it got bought out by someone. But they were... I met Richard... I can't remember if we both met him or not, actually. We probably did. Um, in a little bar, because he wanted to show us it and get our feedback on it, basically. Um, I think because Emily had recommended us uh, to him. And one of the other advisors on that project was Steve. And we got talking about that. Ah. And he said, oh, I can put you in touch with Steve. So he put us in touch with Steve. And then we went to see Steve. Um, and I think we went to see him just when Frankenstein was being written. I think that's right. And we showed him the prototype of Frankenstein. And we explained how we were quite interested in making games without dice rolls because we felt on a computer, dice rolls just feel unfair. They're not fun. And we wanted to make games where you couldn't take steps backwards and, and just various tweaks to the kind of choose your own adventure format that we we were taking quite seriously at the time um and i remember steve said come back when you've sold ten thousand copies so we released frankenstein we sold ten thousand copies we went back and said right we've sold ten thousand copies can we have the sorcery license and steve in a completely pretty much unprecedented maneuver for someone who holds a strong ip said yeah sure here you go yeah. <laughs> and just gave us the right to make a sorcery game um you know he was formal about it and there was a contract and we did review basic design ideas but mostly he just let us get on with it which was really astonishing most ip holders don't do that and the financial barriers are huge and the kind of intellectual property barriers are huge but steve i just had this sense of like let's just give this a try mm. and then when the first sorcery came finally came out he was so chuffed i think that like he'd taken this what must have been a risk for him and i know he'd done sorcery adaptations with people before and they hadn't really panned out but like oh one had some kind of magic that it just broke through and like people it did really well actually and he was thrilled and he used to tell us that he has a games night where he plays with um board games with peter molyneux and ian livingston <laughs> and he would go each each month he would go along and say to ian guess how much money I earned from sorcery this month <laughs> because Ian had some adaptations that they hadn't done as well. <laughs> like obviously Ian is now like Sir Ian Livingstone and 
Steve Jackson is not uh, Steve Jackson. So I think like they have this lovely rivalry <laughs> that we just managed to help Steve along a bit with, um, which was a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of fun. Um, what was that like working with him? Because he was one of your heroes uh, growing up. Uh, yeah, no, I loved it. I loved, I mean, I loved it. I don't know that Joe had ever seen the sorcery books no, before. No, I started I'd, working on it. No. I barely, I barely knew what a game book was. In fact, I didn't know the terminology game book at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, for me, it was really lovely. I like, I, and with the first book, we were very reverent. We tried to stick really closely to adapting the book and not making too much up. We just filled in a couple of bits here and there just because it really needed it. Um, but I think, yeah, that's, I mean, I remember that um, I think the perspective of having one of us being a sorcery fan and the other not knowing sorcery mm. at all probably helped us because I was very much thinking from the point of view of how do we make this good for people who don't know about sorcery and mm. how can we develop it further? And John was all, already keen on kind of uh, rewriting and like we, we weren't just copying and pasting the words and putting the choices where Steve put them. We were sort of breaking it up and um, uh, we had a philosophy at the time that of, of creating micro choices where you'd, you'd, you'd have a choice you'd have very little reading and then and have very frequent choices because the more you're interacting with it the more you feel like you're making a difference um and so we were very much adapting it rather than or how would you say like it's it's adapting in the sense so rather of, than kind of replicating it yeah, yeah right i think we I, I really remember like there'd be passages in the book where it would say things like you walk into a tavern and talk to the bartender and he tells you about a goblin mine nearby turn to page 50 <laughs> and that would be the passage in the book and like we'd we'd instead say you know you walk into the bar and then the bartender would say something to you and then you'd have some choices of what to say back and then he would reply and you would reply and it would be this dialogue that kind of went forwards and went on and reached an end and played a scene and that it's hard to describe how amazing that was from my point of view to start writing this stuff because I've previously written parser-based games and you can't really do dialogue in a parser-based game and I'd written sort of twiny games and things but they don't have much structure for creating very responsive conversations it's quite onerous to to call back to previous choices and we had this ink um, and we had various designs we've put into ink that we thought seemed like a good idea at the time and suddenly they were letting me very quickly write banter and arguments and escalating discussions and haggling like sorcery is full of people haggling all the time <laughs> and it's partly just because ink just affords this and it's a kind of structure of conversation you do, you don't see in many games actually because you need just the right tool to make sure you don't get stuck in a loop the whole time like bioware conversations always loop um because they have to and um and it was delightful it was just delightful bringing these little moments to yeah. life and finding so much richness in these books that had somehow been crushed down into the way that they were formatted. Um, and then I think the, had to be quite terse. the other big revelation for us was just the, the idea of putting it on this massive, beautiful map, um, because it sort of felt like, you know, that, that feeling when you open up a fantasy book and you, you get excited to see the map and where the story is going to lead. And it had that same feeling when you have this beautiful map, you're, you're excited to explore it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mike, Mike Schley, yeah. is it? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Mike Schley, Mike, yeah. Mike Schley. A, a, a fantasy cartographer, <laughs> fantasy and, cartographer. and fine artist. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's done really a fantastic found. job of it. And it's kind of, it's, it's really inspiring when you kind of, you've got a marker on your map and it really 
brings alive this this notion of um you you have agency because if you go this way it means you didn't go that way um yeah that even even more so than the original books so sorcery becomes it is obviously a success for you and a success for steve who is boasting to ian livingston and peter Montague yeah. <laughs> about how well it's doing um and then you go on to make sorcery part two and then you go on to expand it massively uh with part three which is a whole big uh project um at what day at what point at what day um does 80 days start to become an idea and i suppose what is that idea because it's not just an adaptation um, of of Jules, Jules Verne's novel uh, for for people who don't know. It's a reimagining in some sense. It's almost a criticism in parts. Mm. So the idea for eighty days actually came along really quite early. I think we might have been talking about it before we made sorcery. Yeah, even. it's kind of we were, we're very much we had this idea of yeah in the headspace of kind yeah, of we, like how which which novel do we adapt next you know if if mm. if we get to choose one rather than just going with a classic novel that a different writer has chosen what would we choose um mm. and 80 days and was i definitely think we, up there yeah you know we came to it because it has that sense of you can see how the player gets to make a visible choice whereas in a novel like in something like frankenstein it's quite difficult to see where the choices are because it, it has to follow this thread mm. otherwise it's not frankenstein anymore I think Dave did a good job, but I do think that's a unnecessarily hard problem to solve. Um, whereas in eighty days, you don't need to solve that. Problem. And and yet it was um, it was only halfway through the project on eighty days where I think we really started to branch out, so you could visit basically any part of the world. For a while, we were thinking it would be like here's the hot path that that was taken and not in the novel, and maybe will allow you to branch off and go in slightly different directions. But at the start mm -hmm. of the game, we definitely didn't think you'd be able to go all the way down to South Africa. Well, I think part of what happened there was we, when we set up the project with Meg, with Megna, she, she went off and just started writing cities. She felt like writing. And then I got back these cities that were dotted in useless places around the world. <laughs> and I was a bit like, Oh, uh, okay, well, we better, we better start joining these things up. Cause I can't really throw this away. Um, but I definitely remember a point in the development of 80 days when we realized that, that, um, so normally in a branching narrative, right there, the game tells you where you're allowed to go next from everywhere that you are. Like you don't get to choose what your available routes are. They're just what's given to you. And we started to notice that when you played 80 days, if you were in a city and you could see some cities near you, you wanted to have the option of going to them all the time. You never wanted to find that there was an invisible wall between you and that city over there that always felt broken. And so we realized that we had to build something that wasn't really like a branching narrative at all. It was much more like a board game where you just literally pick up ah. from city to city to city to city, just using proximity as the kind of metric of what was possible, except that we actually wrote bespoke narrative for every single connection between every city and every other city, which was a complete nightmare <laughs> because there were flipping hundreds of them. Um, like we often talk about the scope of that game in terms of how many cities there were on the map, but actually writing a city was a fairly pleasant experience. Whereas, you know, you had spent an evening in Paris or an evening in Tunisia or wherever you are. Um, that's very fine. But writing a seven day journey on a boat from place to place when you've already written 55 seven day journeys on a boat was really, really punishing because, you know, what can happen on a boat? Well, people can push each other off. I suppose, that's what we've discovered recently. <laughs> but, um, 
something else yeah, that used that, that was so by the end that it, was yeah. core to the original concept is that we were going to make it like real time or like accelerated real time. Mm. Um, so it was going to be almost like a lifeline thing to start with, like that that you would make an interaction, you'd you'd catch the train and you put your phone down. And you know, ah. an hour later, a thing would pop up saying something's happened on the train or something. Um, mm. I can't remember what finally made us choose to abandon that. I think we were. I remember. We were, we were, no, I, okay. I remember. It, it, so this was a couple of years before Lifeline. I just want to stress that point that we totally <laughs> invented and discarded this concept before they made their game and made more money than we did. But um, uh, we, it was because we realized that 80 days was an incredibly long period of time. Mm. Right. That was the problem. We were like, my God, you'd start this game in like October and you'd be finished in February. But then we did, we, then we did think, and then we thought we we, we considered making we thought it about like accelerating an eight, day, it. eight day accelerated thing. Right. But then you have the problem that you have to wake up in the middle of the night because <laughs> someone's crashed their, their their bicycle on the trade route through through Morocco or whatever. Right. And like you, we couldn't we couldn't have both of those things. We couldn't have it be real time mm. and also accelerated time without disrespecting people's ability to sleep i think so the final nail in the coffin like... was also just that um we wanted to pe- we, we, we wanted people to just be able to sit down and play it and just mm. you know yeah. enjoy it as an adventure yeah. and if we accidentally made a poor design choice where we where we turn an otherwise good kind of two three hour adventure into something that was just not doesn't work at all then that would have been tragic Mm. yeah that's true it's quite often you see designs for like interactive stories which are just like a story but made harder to read (laughs) and i think we were really conscious of falling into that trap like there were there were people at the time making like location-based stories where you had to go to a certain location to get the next chapter and that's a lovely idea but actually in practice it means it's just difficult to read the next chapter so fewer people do and i think yeah we were really conscious Mm. of that so 80 days uh, comes out and in in some ways it's kind of announces in Colonna maybe a, a bigger stage. It's nominated for BAFTAs. Um, it kind of feels like the game that, to me, that really kind of mm. broke through and put your name on the map, I suppose. <laughs> the weird thing was that it came out in like may i think and apple featured it and that was good for sales we had this nice little bubble and then it disappeared completely and by like august september we were all feeling burnt out a little bit miserable a bit like we didn't know what to do with ourselves anymore that like they would have this thing it had gone about as well as an app store game possibly could but nothing had resulted and then it was just around the end of the year we started popping up on game of the year lists and and eventually getting BAFTA and IGF nominations and it was just a complete surprise because we didn't think that anyone had noticed our game at all and then suddenly it was it was this thing and it became recognized as this fated game and we were like oh really us <laughs> what um and it's it was really surprising actually and then we kind of went the other way and thought wow we must be incredible and then we didn't win any baftas and we were like oh no we're rubbish <laughs> so it was quite a roller coaster of trying to work out where do we fit now yeah. um you know are we a big studio or are we a small studio are we popular or are we not popular? it was it like, was in the igfs at the same time we were up for the grand prize but it was the same year that outer wilds was in it and it they they actually had a very mm. early prototype prototype but clearly the judges saw the potential in that game um 
I was very cross about it at the time. <laughs> to be fair, Outer Wilds is a good game. There is, <laughs> you can't really dispute it. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll have to take that, I think. So, I think that it's it's after this that you embark on what I believe is still your, your biggest project mm. uh, to date. You think, well, let, you know, let's go for this. Let's, let's hire some people and make a really big uh, game, a proper a proper big thing. Um, can you tell me a bit about, this game is, of course, heaven's fault, but can you uh, tell me a bit about that thought process and, and, and what, what the idea was initially? And I guess, you know, why you got so excited and, and ambitious with it and about it? I think we had this sense at the time that 80 days came out, a lot of people said, you know, okay, so there's going to be an 80 days too, right? There's going to be an 81 days. <laughs> there's, this is a whole new, I mean, people were saying, oh, here's a genre. You've invented a whole new genre. This is going to be, this is going to be a big thing. There were articles about like, you know, interactive text is here. I remember reading these things, but we had the sense of quite the opposite that, that we'd made this game, this kind of prosy choice-based game, and it was pretty good and people liked it. And if we made another one, people would never ever like it as much as they liked 80 Days because we felt that part of what people fell in love with with that game was that they didn't think a game could be that format and actually be good. People were very cynical about written choice-based games, we felt, um, texty games. And so we felt that if we released another, people would be expecting it to be up here and they would find it down there and then that would just kind of fizzle out and, and we'd lose that enthusiasm. So we kind of had this sense of, oh, great, we've just burnt our bridge right behind <laughs> us. Um, <laughs> like we can't make another sorcery game. We can't make another 80 days game. And if we want to grow and we want to be bigger and we want to do, we want to reach more people, we can't just be making things within our own little niche anymore. We have to go out and invade other people's niches. We have to kind of bring what we know about narrative and storytelling and character and put it in an environment where, where people aren't doing good enough work in that space. And so like, I think a lot of it was, was trying to say, right, look, we're going to make a PlayStation game now, but we're going to make a PlayStation game, which still has a very responsive narrative that remembers everything you've done that has characters that actually respond to you, blah, 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 blah. And all that stuff that kind of, we felt that other PlayStation narrative games just weren't doing. Yeah, I think um, I think we're definitely. You can definitely draw a line of kind of a curve of ambition uh, from kind of the where, when we started with the kind of the Inkle book type things um, all the way up in eighty days was increasing the amount of technology and visuals. And I've I'm a very visual person, so I've always been keen to kind of have something more graphical. So then the logical next step at the time seemed that we'd, you know, we've done these kind of interactive novels. What if we did an interactive graphic novel? Um, and in fact, that's the shape that our prototypes took, that they weren't going to be kind of like um, interactive choices within text. It was going to be interactive choices on um, comic book panels. Oh, um, wow. And so a lot of the technology that we developed for Heaven's Vault was around how do we set up um, a panel for a comic book where you have a 2D piece of character art um, with a speech bubble? And then like we have a background that's sort of a, a simple 3D construction where we can position a camera at various camera angles. Um, and so our early prototypes were actually very much kind of um, static 2D view of a character's head talking. Uh, with some background stuff that you could click around and interact with. Um, and then 
I guess our Icarus moment is that we sort of we broke that a bit. We we drove we we, we had so much, so much character art with like fluid cameras that we could zoom around the character and uh, view these two D characters within a three D space with dynamic cameras. That it sort of evolved into um, a three D game. Um, and I think the very first well, time I think... we showed it to the press was when it was actually at a, quite an intermediate stage where um, it was more like a classic point-and-click adventure game in that you would kind of choose a, um, somewhere on the ground to walk to and you'd press a button and she'd automatically walk over there. And it wasn't until after our first kind of um, press demo at... Uh, GDC where we changed that to make it like fully like twin stick um, exploration controls actually but I think the problem we found was that the graphic novel concept fell into this uncanny valley that you mm. you suddenly you with you know with a text version you don't have a world to explore mm. but you can go anywhere you can do anything um, but the choices you don't have are not obvious in a text context because there's, there's you only get the choices that you can see whereas as soon as you make this graphical world if you can't explore it it's really obvious that you can't explore it it feels like someone's putting a wall around you the whole time and it felt quite constraining yeah. um especially for a game about archaeology where like ex exploring mm. the environment was such a key point of the theme of where the did game that yeah. theme that it became increasingly come frustrating. from is is what was the i what was the idea uh, where, where did that come from so we originally actually were pitching to make a Doctor Who game. We've never said um, that before. <laughs> so I guess we've been... No, we've, we have never said that. We've been holding well, off because... Formally, yeah. formally, we still are pitching to make a Doctor <laughs> Who game because we sent it to the BBC and they said, we'll get back to you. And they never have. So, you know, any day now. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, we were originally uh, outlining a Doctor Who game and that kind of gave us this idea of... Uh, you know, intelligent core space wizard and clueless companion. That's kind of the, which you can kind of see in the Heaven's Vault DNA, I think. Um, and then John watched Stargate. But then, <laughs> yeah, right. Then Joe went on honeymoon. Joe got married and went on honeymoon. I had children. Uh, I had a baby and was sitting up in the middle of the night with this baby that cried a lot. And my wife and I watched a lot of Stargate. And Joe came back from honeymoon and he was like, look, have we got an idea for our game or what? Because we really need one. And I was like, yeah, space archaeology. It's never been done. It's going to be amazing. Space archaeology. Uh, at the time, it hadn't been done either. We were really unlucky to come out in the same year as After Wild. <laughs> really unlucky. Um, but apart from that, yeah, that was where it came from. And then, like, we kind of carried on building technology for a while. And I was actually working on the sorcery games because they still needed to be written at the time. And... I remember Joe sitting down in our office space and saying, so what does the player do in this game? What, what do they actually do to do archaeology? And I was like, I don't know. They jump <laughs> over spike traps and they pull levers and there's rolling boulders. And he was like, that doesn't sound like archaeology to me. And I was like, go away. It's going to be fine. Um, but I think it was a key thing that the more, the closer we got to actually producing like some content for this game the more we started to realize that archaeology is not actually necessarily a very exciting thing for a player to do because what archaeologists actually do is really slowly and carefully dig up things which hopefully they recognize and already know what they are which doesn't match a computer game experience at all um, and then this idea of translating a language came along with a bunch of other ideas that we prototyped as well but mm -hmm. that one yeah i think we ex we kind of explored two or three because we, we we've always liked this idea of having like 
an interactive narrative, but then kind of two or three like core mechanics that integrate with that narrative and kind of avert basically verbs that feel like um, they're they're what the protagonist ought to be doing mm. um, in the narrative. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we we translation was one of them. We we explored other kind of space. We we explored other ideas of like holographic reconstructions of what buildings used to look like. Wow. Stuff. But mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, it, to be honest, that one was interesting because once you holographically reconstructed the building, you were like, oh, there it is. <laughs> um, and it didn't necessarily it didn't necessarily push anything in the narrative layer quite as much as we perhaps were hoping it it might have done. Whereas what we found with the language game was that it was constantly poking the narrative layer. And that was that once we once we found that, that was incredibly exciting. Um, it's a, but, you know, I don't think anyone had any confidence in the language game to start with. It was quite a yeah, it was quite a discovery that it was hmm. as good as it actually was. Because it's uh, an unusual idea, which makes it quite striking to play, because obviously, as you know, and as everyone will know, games are littered with violence and combat. You know, that is a lot of people's fundamental mechanics. So to take something quite different um, and this language translation mechanic, which is so central, you know, to the idea of the game was, was a really nice, refreshing kind of distinct mechanic to build, build a game around. And like many of your games, I suppose that there are only a few well, maybe there's only one which is based on on combat. I think. Oh, with sorcery, I, mean, I suppose. Yeah, but sorcery, mm. sorcery has combat in it. That's true. I think uh, combat isn't narratively very interesting at all. That's its biggest flaw. That's the biggest flaw in most game stories is that they have very little choice about the stories that they tell because the player has so few decent verbs especially if you want the player to actually be active within the story like one of the rules we try to apply is that whatever the protagonist is doing the player is doing whatever the player is doing the protagonist is doing so you know we don't use cutscenes at all we can use transitions to get a character from one place to another but we try not to have the character just do stuff on her own without you instigating it um but if you try to do that in a combat-based game, you've basically got this verb, which is shoot. And like, well, there's a limited number of ways you can really resolve an interpersonal <laughs> conflict when your only button is shoot. Um, I know the American police force tries to solve a whole range of problems this way, but I'm not sure that they're very good at it. Uh, so um, I think there's just no compulsion. But I think also, Joe, and I just don't find those games very interesting yeah. to play. Like, they're just not very exciting, actually. Like, because there comes a point when you've played a shooter and another shooter comes out and you think, well, it's going to be another mm. shooter. And you are either a connoisseur of the shooter genre, in which case it's like fine wines and you can see the subtle differences in the palette or it's just more bloody guns. Um, I mean, I, th I think occasionally we, we, you know, in the past when we've been to GDC and we've walked around the show floor and we sort of said, wow, I, I, I just don't really feel like I'm part of this industry. Mm. But to put it on a more optimistic light i think it's a reflection of just how broad the the game industry has become that that you have um so many different extremely different genres that there's games for all sorts of people with different disposition different interests um and different mechanics that are just wildly different from each other and increasingly i i don't feel like mainstream 
games appeal to me at all, mm. but that's fine. Um, and I think it's actually it's, it's a healthy sign that the, the 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 games that are being produced are so diverse. Yeah, it does, being combat free doesn't feel that controversial. Yeah, anymore. I think right. five six years yeah. ago, it it felt a lot more controversial. So, Heaven's Fault. Um, I think I remember it took something like four and a half years uh, to make in total. And mm. you hired, you brought in the biggest team that you've worked with, something like eight eight people uh, in total. Yeah, I think it was. And it comes out and it's, yeah. you know, it's it's a great game. It's uh, it's a big project, but it really takes its toll um, on, on you. Um, so much so that actually, and it kind of ends what I suppose is a kind of first era um, or kind of caps the first era of Inkle, but it takes its toll on you so much so that you decide that actually you don't really want to make projects of that size um, and ambition again. Ambition's a tricky word, but of that size, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we were left rather reeling from it. It was a bit, it was a bit of a runaway train by the end of the game we just had to get this thing done and it didn't really matter whether we enjoyed it anymore <laughs> or not because there was so much time and effort sunk into it and there's you know loads and loads i love about that game and loads and loads i regret about it but you know that's okay um mm. but then after that we just couldn't face anything big at all and so that that was kind of 2019 and uh, we kind of yeah we really stepped back we did a couple of ports of things like we ported 80 days to the switch mostly for fun um and we did some work on pendragon or, or the game that became pendragon and, and joe was working on the highland game by this time too but it was very much a sense oh, i think of... i think i mean i i think back then like i seem to remember i had three projects <laughs> that i was doing at once somehow like i think i was oh, yeah. doing the the heaven's vault port at the same time as doing like Pendragon graphic design at the same time is trying to get some time to do the Highland game. I feel uh, like there's some missing time in there. Like, I feel like I'm not quite sure what we were doing in 2019. Like, I, I took a brief <laughs> holiday to write over the Alps for Stave Studios. I remember doing that pretty much straight mm. away, but I still feel like I don't really know what happened. And then we were releasing Pendragon, but that was the end of 2020. <laughs> but then that's partly because 2020 was 2020, right? Like everybody just mm. like went into a coffin <laughs> for six months um, and hibernated. Um, and I think that definitely happened to us too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was, it was quite, it was quite rough, but like, I think coming out the back of Heaven's Heavensworth, we didn't come out with this sense that what the world really wanted was more games in this style. Like we found that it was an incredibly polarizing game. Like people who liked it tended to love it and really kind of want mm. to, you know, we had people really wanting to talk and espouse about how the narrative worked and how the responsiveness and all the flexibility and the characters and all these things we thought were really important. Then we had other people just sort of saying, well, I can't use the camera at all. And we'd be like, but it's mm. a perfectly normal 3D camera. And we, there was something in the design of the game, something in the way it flowed or was structured that for certain people, it just broke some fundamental rules for them. And I still don't entirely know what those fundamental rules were, but it, 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 this div that kind of level of divisiveness in an expensive project is you just can't risk it really you can't afford it mm. um, i think that's it like i think so heaven's vault i think is probably had the earned some of the most revenue of any of the projects we've done but it's difficult to say that 
I mean, in terms of profit, it's it's like the least successful game we've had. So it's just about like balancing out. We we thought, you know, you can just spend more money to make more money. If we make a fancier, higher production game, then it's just like doing 80 days, except mm. all the numbers are bigger, right? And as it turned out, it didn't quite work out that then, way. Like it was, it's been really successful, but we we've learned that we need to be a lot more careful about. But then something else changed about what we spend. Something else changed in the world, right? Because we started it in 2014 when indie games were on this really high wave of attention and focus, and the mainstream industry wasn't doing anything particularly exciting because it was kind of entering a bit of a slump, and then. But since then, the, the so-called indie apocalypse came along, right? D during the development of Heaven's Vault, as we were spending money on this thing, we saw major studios folding and major, very, very popular studios releasing incredibly high profile indie titles that just didn't do that well. And that happened again and again. And it became, I think that really added to that, that runaway train sense that this feeling that everybody else was running out of track left and right of us and we were like oh god what are we doing um mm. and by the time it finally came out in 2019 it just it, the indie market was i mean it's not dead the indie market is not dead but it's incredibly punishing compared to the market of 2014 it's, it's, it's extremely competitive like i noticed it in my my own like like browsing like just looking at my switch or something mm. it's just a million games or or like on steam um it's it's there's just so many i mean this is basically we're talking about indie apocalypse aren't we but like there's just so many it's difficult to to treat any single one as feeling special unless yeah. you get a personal recommendation this is or, thing. and like or something. I, I think it, the consumers have gone from looking for a reason to play a game for looking for right. a reason not to play a game because it's the only way mm. to deal with the overload. You look at it and go, oh, I don't like the art style, gone. I don't like the theme, gone. I don't like the mechanic, gone. There's a negative <laughs> review there, gone. And so you have this incredibly harsh filtration process. It may even be fair. You know, a lot of games people buy and they don't mm. like. Um, and perhaps there should be better ways of dealing with that problem. Maybe Game Pass is a good thing in that way. But... Um, but yeah, it was a really difficult, it was a it was pre a pretty rocky launch for us, really, and quite kind of quite hard. And I think we, we reeled from that for really quite a long time. And in the um, in the reeling, is, yeah. is there a, an adjustment to your mindset? Is there a kind of a feeling that you, you come together and say, well, OK, look, that was quite tough by the end. So let's do things differently in the future. I think what actually happened was Joe and I decided we were going to do okay. our own things for a bit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, think, I think we were like, so, you know, I start doing kind of Pendragon, which I sort of was the lead on and, and Joe was doing graphic design as and when it was required. And Joe starts working on the Highland game. And that's very much the same thing, really. I'm kind of doing narrative work on as required um, and kind of working in quite separate tracks. And I think that's partly just, just, just that, desire to get away from anything complicated or anything like that requires mm. too much discussion and negotiation and kind of sorting things out because big projects become management projects and that can become quite frustrating not that i remember heaven's vault being a particularly argumentative or difficult project in that sense but like i guess that mm. must have been one of its costs um so that was a that was quite a big change for us actually it didn't help that um <laughs> i moved city as well um so my wife got a job in leicester so i moved yeah. to leicester and john still in cambridge so and we did um, all keep having more yeah. children as well um which <laughs> yes. really like 
completely changes. I mean, oh, your, your work schedule just changes completely. The times mm. you can work, the amount you can work changes completely. Um, the focus that you have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're just variable. different people than we were 10 years ago. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, I think one of the privileges of, of running a studio is that you do get to actually change the studio to match the people rather than trying mm -hmm. to change the people to match the studio. You know, there is no well, look, you need to be in the office now. So you bloody well get to the office now. And if that means your kids are screaming in the hallway, then you leave them screaming in the hallway. There's none of that. And that's <laughs> great because I think, you know, if we were working mm. for any big studio out there, it would be the other way around. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's impossible not to be grateful for that, but it, it definitely has changed the way that we do things like a lot. So the only game we haven't really talked about there um, is Pendragon, which we uh, which we mentioned briefly there. I'm, um, I'm very fond of Pendragon. Mm. Um, so where, where did the idea come from for Pendragon? Were, were you like, I know I'm going to do Arthurian. Legends. So, so Pendragon started is probably the only game we've made that started mechanically rather than narratively. So Tom Kale, who has left Inkle now actually, but was with us for about four years, five years during Heaven's Vault, uh, was fiddling around with prototypes and had this desire to make a turn-based board game symmetric board game and we're just trying out different rules and we would sit at lunchtime and just play whatever variation of rules he'd come up with this time and some of them were horrendously complicated and some were overpowered and some didn't work and blah 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 and we eventually found we'd all chip in ideas and we eventually found this design that worked really really well actually that was just really tight and challenging and always produced different shapes and was quite fun to play and we more or less shelved it because we thought well it's not an inkle game and then at some point somebody said well what if what if the pieces on the board argued with each other while you were playing? <laughs> then it would be an Inkle game, wouldn't it? And so we were trying to think of what would be a scenario where you'd have these two opposing forces slowly, carefully positioning and attacking each other, but bickering while they do it. Um, and I don't know when the idea for Arthurian myth popped up, but I suspect that came from me because I've always had a soft spot for Arthurian, mm -hmm. Arthurian stuff. I've always wanted to do an Arthurian game. Um, and then it was it was Brexit as well. The other thing that <laughs> happened after the end of Heaven's Vault was Brexit started becoming this horrific reality. And I was just so angry, Brexit and Trump, I was so angry with the world and the fascists and the pathetic level of discourse that the, the people who support the right-wing fascists would put out this kind of trivial, anal superiority that you would hear being espoused on the internet all the time in replacement of real thought. And like the current Conservative government is still exactly doing this. You know, um, just sort of, oh, well, we're right. We're right by default. So we can say whatever we like. Um, what was it? Nadine Dorian said today that there was a, a birthday cake and singing at Boris Johnson's birthday party. But that doesn't make it a party because we're in charge. So go away. And that kind of really linked to me to this Arthurian sense of, you know, when the whole world has gone mad and is hell bent on destruction, what are good people supposed to do? And the Arthurian answer to that is bloody well <laughs> keep going for whatever point, for no purpose, even if you can't achieve anything, you just keep going. And that kind of matched the narrative structure of the game quite well for me, that you're just sort of pushing forward relentlessly, even though people are falling, even though people are dying, because that's what you do if you're a knight in an Arthurian story. And that's what it feels like to live through Brexit and Trump is this sort of sense of you just have to keep pushing forward and assume that there will be a light somewhere. Um, and that was enough of a fire to make the project make sense and kind of cohere and come together 
it was horrendous to write because like we had this mechanical system that you never knew what state the board was in ever at any point and so we were constantly having wolves falling in love <laughs> with each other and going no oh, stop it <laughs> um and you know every now and then i'll get a bug report from someone who says well i was playing this game and this ghost appeared and it seemed to think i was this character and not this character and i kind of look at it and go oh god and you dig through the code and you go yeah yeah okay i can see that is possible that that could have happened um so it's one of those games which is never ever going to be finished i think there'll always be another permutation you can get to but i like the tone of the thing i think it has the right the right spirit and the right soul um and again it was really divisive when it came out there were people who loved it and said they really loved the tone of it and they, they found the gameplay interesting and the strategy interesting and then we had a lot of other people saying this is not how strategy games work you should have done it like this <laughs> there's a, supposed to be a turn order there's no turn order in your game it's supposed to be you're not supposed to sacrifice pieces voluntarily you don't do that in tactics games this is all wrong we got all these reviews and all these complaints that were like this lemon is a terrible <laughs> potato and i was just like <laughs> and that was pretty frustrating so yeah um yeah so pendragon was a bit of a wallop as well i kind of came out the back of it going well whether it's successful as a game or not i don't know but i never ever <laughs> want to make a tactic strategy game ever again like i just don't know how to talk to that audience in a way that doesn't make them cross <laughs> so i just need to i need to not be doing that anymore um, do you have um do you each have a favorite game of yours that you've made uh that's really difficult uh, to say I, I mean, I have... it's quite hard to play a game you've made and like it i mean i guess i'm fond of 80 days just because it's such a high point of um I guess it was it was when all the stars aligned and it was sort of like the it's like peak inkle somehow like it's where like I personally did my best kind of um graphic design work best technical implement implementation um and the design was kind of elegant and it was a fast project that that um wasn't drawn out like um heaven's vault um but it's difficult to say that it's absolute my absolutely my favorite because there are like special things about all of the projects i think mm. yeah i think it's the same for me 80 days was a charmed project where just everything it was i mean it was hard but like everybody was doing the best work they had ever done and was delighted to find that it was quite good actually like we mm. were all so we were all so young somehow like Joe and I had never done anything like quite like this and Megna had never written anything on this scale and Lawrence, the music, had never really composed anything like with this much control over what he was doing, I think. And it just everything just seemed... Um, and Jama, who did the art as well, um, everyone was just delighted by it and that was a lovely place to be. And it had a real sense that we could do anything while we were making that game and that was pretty wonderful. I felt a bit like that baking overboard, actually, that like just it was hmm. so much fun to work on and that kind of i think that comes across in the final product just this sense of joy and so it's for me it's probably between those two but but when i look back at like the actual kind of the work done i'm, I'm really actually most proud of heaven's vault really because i think what well, one thing that's been really noticeable about the re reception to that game is slowly over time it's becoming a little bit more accepted that narratively it's really very interesting indeed and like 
some of the things it does kind of to make its narrative cohere regardless of what you do like i am interested in the theory of interactive storytelling and i think that some of the things that that puts into practice are really very very solid and very interesting and i'm really really happy to have kind of stress tested them on a 20-hour game that you can play repeatedly um and yeah i think like that's that's work i clearly don't hate that game because i did go back and write a novel <laughs> so i must i must have liked it so i think probably heaven's vault wins out in the end for me but in a kind of long slow mm. burn kind of way yeah i i definitely have mixed feelings about heaven's vault but i'm massively proud about of the the kind of the world we created and how many things we did do differently like from the way the dialogue is presented to just the madness of the kind of even though it wasn't maybe the most successful from a design point of view like the madness of having this kind of sailing through rivers in space to get to moons and doing archaeology on those moons like it's a mad concept that we did but i love the fact that we didn't hold back there um mm. yeah so and it kind of i love that sorry just i was going to say we you, there's a discord we have a discord server that we set up for heaven's vault and there are still people <laughs> talking about the world of that game like two and a half years later and that i get i get a lot of joy out of just going to that room mm. and checking in with those people um and none of our other games have that that's lovely they just don't so uh you're working on the the highland game at the moment and there, there's more to come from that this year do you have uh beside that do you have ambitions for what you want inkle to do in the future any kind of burning ambitions you know heaven's fault was once upon a time you know let's make let's reinvent the point and click genre but do you have any similar burning ambitions for what you want the next era of inkle to to deliver i mean as as someone who is sort of like um i was sort of taking a bit of a backseat on overboard because i was actively working on high, the highland game at the same time i'm like quite itching to go back to that kind of scope of project again um because the highland project is quite large again so i'm sort of i'm back to thinking oh i'd love to do like a one month project that turns into three months again mm. so hopefully we'll get to do that again um after the highland project i'd love to do that but i, I i'm don't... not really thinking further ahead than that i'm not thinking very long term <laughs> no <laughs> we really must finish the highland game um <laughs> I don't know what I'd like to do, but I do find myself itching, ironically, to make a big, to make a really big game again. <laughs> like I've got this real, I'm starting to get annoyed about it again. I'm wanting to like <laughs> make something that's really, really flashy and fine and maybe for once actually spend somebody else's money on it rather than funding everything ourselves. But like, uh, you know, we just, just to once get like 10 million quid from some <laughs> random investor or publisher or whatever, and just spend, spend all of it, you know, just like actually do motion capture and hire Patrick Stewart and like have, you know, <laughs> I, all of that, like get Dwayne the Rock Johnson wearing those spots to do, I mean, just something, you know, it, just because I'm old and I'm going to have to stop doing this at some point. So it would be quite fun to have done that once before we stop. Um, but it'd be nice not to have to worry about whether it made a profit or not. <laughs> just, yeah, for sure. Um, just spend someone's money. So we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. I've kept you talking for ages, um, but you're very interesting. You've got a lot to say. So um, 
it was really lovely listening to you. But before we finish, I've got some questions that I ask everyone. Um, and we've probably covered at least one of these already. So the first question is, first game. What was your first game that you played? Uh, I think my first game was actually um, one that I've never been able to find ever again. That I, I talked about the Mac Classic um, that my parents had. My mum had that in her office and she had like this train set game. Um, again, it was black and white, but I've tried Googling it. And I can't find any reference to it, but I, I loved it because you could place the tracks and then have like a break in the tracks and the, the train would like uh, crash and explode. But like, this was like old school, just like a little fuzzy <laughs> sprite of an explosion. Uh, yeah, that was the first moment when I was like, wow, you can kind of simulate. I don't know what my like six year old brain was thinking about it at the time, but it definitely excited me. I think if the first game I played and enjoyed was probably the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure. But the first game I actually ever played, I think it was called Grandmother's Garden. It was on the BBC <laughs> Micro. Granny's Garden. Granny's Garden. And it was like each level was a different puzzle. Like you had to yeah. type instructions for a car or something and no one could ever finish it. And it was notorious amongst all the kids at school that they would wheel this thing out and you'd start again from the beginning every time <laughs> and you'd fail <laughs> and then you'd give up. Um, I think it had some music, didn't it? I, 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 I think sort it did, want yeah. to remember but, some music, but I'm not sure but I it quite would, get it. Would have been that, it was that, that, that teletext style of art, that kind of CFAX art. It's all kind of blocky squares, like pixels, but there's only 20 of them <laughs> or something. Um, yeah, so that's got to be my first game. Okay, then yeah, I think Load Runner on the BBC Micro is also one of my first ones. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the second question is, what was the last game that you played? Uh, I haven't been playing much recently. Like I did some, I did play some stuff for the BAFTA judging process, but I didn't really get into anything particularly. The last game I played properly probably spider-man miles morales like last year like last game i finished anyway i really like the spider-man games they're really fun yeah i, th I think the, the most of the games i play nowadays is like playing with my uh five-year-old son um and we've been playing he really likes the mario games so um we just started playing uh what's it called it's the one that's got bowser's fury but then there's the other half which is like the port of the uh the version from the um is it called bowser's fury i think yeah but it's like two games in one for some okay. reason they like packaged it up anyway i did actually play bowser's fury the other night so that was my most recent game nice okay and here's here's the biggie um what is your favorite game it's called the last express it was made in 1999 by Jordan Mencher. It's set aboard a train and it's in real time and it's rotoscoped and the characters on the train move around freely regardless of what you do. And they talk to each other in a variety of languages and you have to be in the right place at the right time. There's an entire violin concert which has been simulated and rotoscoped and recorded and you can sit in a room and listen to it or you can go and explore the train and break into everyone's carriages while they're all listening to the violin concert. It is extraordinary. It The puzzle design doesn't really work. It's quite an old game and the UI is somewhat clunky, but in terms of its uh, the beauty of its construction and the quality of its writing, it's unmatched in all of gaming still. 
and in terms of the simplicity of the concept, but the the amount that it manages to pull out of it, it's it's breathtaking. It's an absolute masterwork. It got ignored at the time because at the time people were excited about the camera spinning round objects in Tomb Raider uh, because it came <laughs> out at just the wrong moment. Um, it is without a doubt the pivotal piece of interactive narrative and it was hugely inspirational in the development of heaven's vault people need to play the last express even though it's difficult to play it's kind of it's the closest we've got to a beowulf or a chaucer or whatever you want like (laughs) as a core piece of literature it's astonishing i don't know whether it's fun or not but that's honestly irrelevant um it's extraordinary (laughs) so my favorite uh game when i was a kid as i mentioned was myth um, but my favorite, just, just to give you another answer, my favorite game recently, it's a bit, little bit controversial, but I really, really, really got into Cyberpunk. Um, That's like, not seriously. Well, but lots of people you think, yeah, like it, it had um, you know, a troubled launch, but I don't mind bugs that much. There, I did see a lot of bugs, but it didn't stop me really getting immersed in that game and like... Just the the narrative integration, the way there's no cutscenes, the way you walk in first person from from scene to scene, and it's all 100% seamless, and the world is like beautiful. Um, I I I really felt like I was a person in that world, um, and I I genuinely like I never 100% games, but I almost 100% did that wow. game. I think, yeah. That's, it was just not me at all to do that. But, yeah, no, I yeah, remember you brilliant. talking about it when you started playing it. We all just thought you'd gone completely mad because it was like <laughs> the least Joe game you could imagine, really. But yeah, And I played it on Stadia as well, Wow, which is also quite crazy. <laughs> awesome. Well, great answers and, um, you know, lovely talking to you and talking about the history of Inkle and looking forward to, to seeing what comes of the Highland game and, and beyond that. Um, as well um, John and Joseph thank you so much uh, for talking to me thanks very much it's been a pleasure thank you.